Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to a History of Europe Key Battles podcast. This is the French Revolutionary Wars, part three of six. In the last two episodes, I have described the turbulent events of the 1780s and the beginning of the 1790s. This included the fallout from the War of American Independence, a war between the Russians and the Austrians on one side and the Ottoman Empire on the other, and local revolts in the United Dutch Provinces and Southern Netherlands. The French Revolution happened to coincide with these other events, and for the first two years, it was mostly an internal affair, which had perhaps surprisingly little impact on the rest of Europe. Economic and social problems had been building up in France for decades before the Revolution. Once the most powerful nation in Europe, she had suffered a string of national humiliations. A poor deal at the end of the Seven Years' War, 1756-63, to the loss of most of her colonial possessions to the British, and fading influence diplomatically across the continent. The widely read political philosopher, the Abbé William Reynal, renowned for his courageous attack on slavery and imperialism, complained of France's fall from global predominance. Quote, the French navy, which had been once, just once so redoubtable, had ceased to exist. Weakness, disorder and corruption have reduced it to the oblivion from which it had emerged during the brightest period of the monarchy. It could no longer defend our most far-flung possessions, nor protect our coasts from invasion and pillage. On every shore of our globe, our navigators, our merchants, were exposed to ruinous snubs and humiliations a hundred times more intolerable. End quote. The French king from 1774, Louis XVI, was poorly equipped for the role of national leader at such a difficult time. 
His tragedy was that he had good intentions and a strong sense of responsibility, but he was shy and awkward and lacked the required political skills and charisma. Like his grandfather and predecessor, Louis XV, he was a poor communicator and struggled to make difficult decisions. The king's wife, Marie, had her faults, but in no way deserved the vitriolic, austrophobic abuse she received. She became a lightning rod for hatred of the Austrian alliance, which was given part of the blame by many for France's woes. The Austrians were every bit as disenchanted with their alliance with France. In the year 1778, the French had failed to give them any help in the War of Bavarian Succession, and then in 1784, even threatened to fight against Austria on the side of the Dutch in a dispute over the river Scheldt. Time and again, the alliance appeared to be on the brink of collapse, but somehow limped along. The reason was probably the lack of an obvious alternative, but mutual resentment continued to fester at both the governmental and popular level. Decades of failure for the French in foreign and domestic affairs resulted in a profound crisis of legitimacy for the monarchy. King Louis XVI was held responsible by many, although he had been left a difficult legacy by his predecessor, in whose long reign from 1715 to 1774 French foreign policy had drifted aimlessly. Brendan Sims, in his book Europe, the Struggle for Supremacy, describes Louis XVI and his ministers as being locked in a downward spiral. Quote, the political nation and the money markets, both foreign and domestic, had lost all confidence in Bourbon grand strategy. This meant that the monarchy found it difficult to borrow except at exorbitant rates of interest. This in turn reduced Bourbon diplomatic and military clout. End quote. An important change in the 1770s was a cultural change, led from Paris, but which quickly spread out into the provinces. This was accelerated by the growth of journalism as a major industry. The first daily national newspapers, such as the Journal de Paris, were published alongside what today would be called the tabloid press, which specialised in scandals, sensation and soft pornography, in pamphlets, popular ballads, and flysheets for posting up on walls. In addition was the spread of facilities for public education and debate. At the same time, there developed a network of small popular theatres and cabarets, where the shows often had a critical social or political message. One of the best-known operas of the time was The Marriage of Figaro, with the text of the original play written by Pierre Beaumarchais, which was sharply critical of the aristocracy. Napoleon is later to have said that the French Revolution began not with the fall of the Bastille, but the play's first performance. He exaggerates its impact, but argues Colin Jones, by showing the nobility as morally bankrupt and pathetic, the comedy, quote, played subtly into a more general process taking place in the 1780s of demonisation of an aristocracy on whom the monarch continued to shower favours and privileges. End quote. Louis 
The French population grew steadily in the 1700s, but this put pressure on the availability of farmland. Also, wages failed to keep pace with price rises, especially of grain, putting pressure on people's living standards. From the 1770s, around the start of the reign of Louis XVI, times were increasingly bad. In 1775, in the so-called Flower War, protesting crowds of peasants and urban dwellers rioted over grain shortages. Matters were aggravated by a massive outbreak of a cattle plague which caused havoc to livestock herds. The French government realised the need for some kind of reform, but found it difficult to break through the network of vested interests which had developed over the centuries. Charles Esdell, in his book on the French Revolutionary Wars, lists a number of factors that were holding the French state back from reaching its full potential. One problem was the vast majority of office holders held their posts not on merit, but because they had bought them, or because this had been done by earlier generations. Also, the propertied classes, those with the most resources, were able to get away with paying hardly any tax, and the church paid none at all, leaving the tax burden to the poor. From the 1760s onwards, whenever the government tried to control its debt and to make tax more equitable, they met fierce resistance. The local parliaments tasked with implementing the reforms claimed they were defending the rights of their subjects against the despotism of central government, when in fact they were defending the privileges of the elite. In the year 1774, Louis XVI, in an attempt to push forward fiscal reforms, appointed the respected economist Anne-Robert Turgot as the Controller General of Finances. Turgot put forward proposals advocating free trade and the sweeping aside of outdated institutions, but when the proposals met resistance, Louis failed to back them and dismissed Turgot. Similar to Emperor Joseph II in Austria, Turgot was probably too impatient for change and could have been more successful proceeding gradually with one change at a time. State finances continued to worsen until August 1786, when the French finance minister, Charles Callon, effectively admitted that the monarchy was bankrupt. Louis was forced to convene an assembly of notables, but this dissolved three months later without any substantial fiscal reform. This was the backdrop to September 1787, when a Prussian army invaded Holland to suppress a revolt, and although the Dutch had recently agreed an alliance with the French and expected help, Louis found himself without the funds to intervene, yet another national humiliation for proud Frenchmen. Appalling harvests in 1787 and 1788 sent bread prices rocketing upwards, triggering unrest across the country, including in Paris, Grenoble, Dijon, Toulouse and Rennes. On May 5th, 1789, in a desperate attempt to acquire the finances he needed, Louis resorted for the first time in over a century to recall the Estates General, a General Assembly 
representing the French estates of the realm. The clergy, which was the first estate, the nobility, which was the second, and the commoners, which was the third estate. The Estates General met at Versailles on May 5th, 1789. They were immediately divided over a fundamental issue. Should they vote by head, giving the advantage to the third estate, or by estate, in which case the two privileged orders of the realm might outvote the third? On June 17th, the bitter struggle over this legal issue drove the deputies of the third estate to declare themselves as the National Assembly and they threatened to proceed, if necessary, without the other two orders. They were supported by many of the parish priests, who outnumbered the aristocratic upper clergy among the church's deputies. When royal officials locked the deputies out of their regular meeting hall on June 20th, they occupied the king's indoor tennis court, and swore an oath not to disperse until they had given France a new constitution. The king grudgingly gave in and urged the nobles and the remaining clergy to join the assembly, which took the official title of the National Constituent Assembly on July 9th. At the same time, however, Louis began gathering troops to dissolve it. These two months of prevarication, at a time when the price of bread was at its highest in living memory, infuriated the towns and the provinces. Rumours of an aristocratic conspiracy by the king and the privilege to overthrow the third estate led to further panic and riots known as the Great Fair of July 1789. The gathering of royal troops around Paris and the dismissal of the popular minister Jacques Necker provoked insurrection in the capital. As violence and disorder mounted on the streets of Paris, Many royal units simply went over to the demonstrators en masse. Here and there, there were some clashes between the crowds and units that had as yet remained loyal, but the king's commanders soon decided to pull back their men rather than risk further mutinies. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.
The most symbolic event of the French Revolution was the fall of the royal fortress and prison, the Bastille, on the 14th of July. The disturbances, however, were not confined to the capital. Starting in the region of Franche-Comté and Gascony, the countryside was gripped by an extraordinary wave of panic and violence, which soon spread from one end of the country to the other. In village after village, peasants turned on their lords, and over weeks of turmoil, many chateaus were pillaged and burned to the ground. In one sense, this was nothing new. Peasant revolts had a long history in France but never anything so widespread and so prolonged. The National Constituent Assembly was drawn into the crisis and met on the night of August the 4th, 1789. In a desperate attempt to put an end to the riots, it decreed the abolition of the feudal regime and of the tithe. Then, on August 26th, it introduced the Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen, proclaiming liberty, equality, the inviolability of property and the right to resist oppression. The decrees and declaration were so radical that Louis refused to sanction them. The Parisians rose again and on October the 5th marched to Versailles. The next day they brought the royal family back to Paris. The National Constituent Assembly, effectively now in charge of the country, worked on a new constitution. The French Revolution now stood revealed in all its diversity. At Versailles, the third estate of the Assembly was pushing for far-reaching political reforms, inspired by the Enlightenment, to restore France's power in Europe and the rest of the world. In Paris, pamphleteers and propagandists competed for influence as they called on the power of the street. In the larger towns and cities, the townsfolk wanted cheap bread, and in the countryside, the peasants and landless labourers wanted an end to feudalism, and with it, access to land. Over the next two years, events in France were to be dominated by the interplay between these four elements. The National Constituent Assembly completed the abolition of feudalism and established civil equality among men. They also nationalised the lands of the Roman Catholic Church in France to help pay off the public debt and to redistribute its wealth. Having deprived the church of its resources, the assembly then resolved to reorganise the church, an action fiercely opposed by Pope Pius VI and by many of the French clergy, and became a divisive issue among the general population. The assembly also swept away the complicated administrative system of the old regime, dividing up the country into more rational units, which would be administered by elected assemblies. The key ideological foundation of the revolution was that sovereignty be given to the people rather than the traditional model where a monarch ruled by divine right. What that meant in substance was fiercely debated by the various different groups who spanned the whole political spectrum from right to left and from moderate to more radical. At first the new government did not wish to create a republic 
instead a new system of monarchy in which the king and the assembly would share power. However, Louis XVI was weak and vacillating and seemed to want the old system to be restored. On June the 20th, 1791, he tried to flee the country, but before he could reach the border, he was ignominiously recaptured at the town of Varennes, near the border with the Netherlands, and was brought back to Paris under guard. Shortly after, the king was suspended from his functions, and the assembly took over full control of government. A number of French counter-revolutionaries, including some nobles fearing for their life, abandoned the struggle in their own country and emigrated. Many of the emigres formed into armed groups and sought help from the rulers of Europe. The most prominent was the king's brother, the Count of Provence, who set up base in the city of Koblenz at the confluence of the rivers Rhine and Moselle in western Germany. At first, the various rulers of Europe were reluctant to get involved and, in any case, were preoccupied with other matters. They assumed that France, at least for a time, would be weakened by the revolution, as was most commonly the case when major internal revolts occurred. A few rulers and politicians, however, were alarmed by the potential significance of the radical ideas of the revolution. Most famously, a member of the British Parliament named Edmund Burke wrote a pamphlet in late 1790 called Reflections on the Revolution, which opposed radical change and went on to become a defining tract of modern conservatism in Britain. In it, he advocated more gradual reform and urged that the rationalist ideals of the revolutionaries devalued traditional wisdom. The repercussions of the king's flight to Varennes were considerable. How could a constitutional monarchy function when its crowned head had clearly demonstrated that he wanted no part in it? In France there grew widespread anxiety that foreign intervention was on hand, and so military preparations were hastily begun. Outside France, the episode triggered a wave of sympathy for the king, indignation at his treatment and concern for his fate. Beforehand, Emperor Leopold II had turned down repeated appeals for help from his sister, the French queen Marie Antoinette. Leopold was pacific by nature and had been understandably anxious not to do anything that might imperil the position of the royal family but he was now moved to issue what became known as the Padua Circular to his fellow monarchs, proposing a joint declaration to secure the release of the French royal family. The Circular was a well-meaning diplomatic initiative. Leopold sincerely believed that the French Revolution would settle down and allow France to become a stable constitutional monarchy. The next month, the Emperor went further by issuing the joint declaration of Pilnitz with King Frederick William of Prussia, with much the same content, but with the intention of having more force. Sadly, however, Leopold miscalculated. His belief that fear of the revolution was so widespread that it would provoke other powers into action was mistaken. More importantly, he misjudged the situation in France as well, the declaration fanned the flames of extremism in the French Assembly, strengthening the hands of the radical, 
Brissotine faction, named after its leader, Jacques Brissot, who favoured war as a means of restoring French fortunes and furthering the revolution. During the winter of 1791-92, tensions rose in Paris, caused partly by French fears of an attack, and partly by Austria's continuing conviction that France could be coerced. Habsburg threats only ended up inflaming the situation by increasing French anxieties and helping to raise the political temperature in Paris. In Paris, power had, up until then, been held by relative moderates, believers in constitutional monarchy, who were keen to cooperate with Louis. Opposing them, however, was a more radical faction, the Jacobins, who had established themselves as a popular movement across the country. They deliberately stoked anxieties about an imminent invasion, convening mass meetings and street demonstrations, and taking advantage of widespread popular antipathy towards Austria. The Jacobins gained the upper hand in Paris in October 1791, when the National Assembly was dissolved and replaced by the so-called Legislative Assembly. The campaign against Austria was central to the Jacobins' appeal, a way to unite different factions against a common foreign enemy. The same nationalist sentiment was evident when the Assembly passed a decree in September, annexing the two enclaves in the south of the country ruled by the Pope, Avignon and Comtan-Venacen, where supporters of the revolution had called for union with France. The justification given in the Assembly's decree was, quote, by virtue of the right of France to their possession, and in accordance with the wish to be incorporated into France expressed freely and solemnly by the majority of the communities and citizens, end quote. The implications of the decree were explosive, a revolutionary principle of international law, namely that a people had the right of self-determination. Although a reasonable proposition in theory, it had the potential to undermine the whole system of diplomatic relations which European powers of the time used to negotiate settlements between themselves. The issue of the enclaves could most likely have been solved easily enough by agreement on a financial settlement, rather than by unilateral action. War appeared ever more likely, more than anything else according to Tim Blanning, because of sharply differing assessments by each side of the other's strengths. Quote, the revolutionaries looked at old Europe and thought they saw a moribund political system in its death agony, end quote. They saw how the Dutch patriots had revolted against their stadtholder and that the Belgians had revolted against the emperor. Also how the Hungarians wanted to throw off the Austrian yoke and the Irish their independence from Britain and so on. For their part, the old regime powers saw the French state immobilised by bankruptcy and civil unrest. On the 1st of March, Emperor Leopold II died suddenly at the age of 44, after an illness of only three days. Having shown a great deal of political skill in the first months of his short reign, his great miscalculation on France meant that by the time of his death, war was virtually inevitable. His son and successor, 
the 24-year-old Francis, or Francis II, is sometimes criticised for his bellicose attitude, but in reality he had little freedom of action since diplomatic tensions had already ratcheted up so much. On the 20th of April, 1792, the French Assembly voted overwhelmingly to declare war against Austria. Speaker after speaker denounced the alliance with Austria and declared it was time for France to stand up again and to resume its rightful place as the greatest power in the world. They also argued that war would be quick and easy. As the Dutch and Belgians had shown, the oppressed peoples of Europe were sighing for liberation and would rise in revolt against their feudal tyrants the moment a French army crossed the frontier. One of the few dissenting voices was the revolutionary Maximilian Robespierre, who stated his opinion that liberty could never be founded by the use of foreign force. But his warning went unheeded, and war commenced that spring. I hope you can join me next week for the beginning of the fighting in the French Revolutionary Wars. In the meantime, check out the podcast Facebook page or Patreon page if you'd like to help support the show. Thank you for listening. Until next time, all the best and goodbye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 